Hello, it's Grant Cameron, um, and I have a presentation I want to do today. I um, saw a presentation done by Dr. Gary Nolan at Stanford University on the metal materials that they're analyzing, and I had a sort of wow moment in terms of the fact that I've done for a number of years a presentation on called the theory of wow. And when I saw one of the things that Gary Nolan had mentioned, I figured I would do another presentation and uh, tie in what he talked into about the theory of wow. So I'll start with a PowerPoint presentation and I've done this a number of times over the years, uh, but this presentation I'm gonna do now has a lot more detail. I've called the presentation I'm going to do today, Metals, Isotopes, and Dream Science. It's based upon um, an idea that I got a number of years ago called the Theory of Wow. I hated acronyms, so I called it the TTOW, and it's a, a theory that I've lectured on a number of times, and I now think, based upon the latest things that I've seen, that this may be more significant than what I first thought. Uh, what people usually um, translate a lot of the theory of wow is the dumb alien theory, uh, which would be the TDAT theory. And that is the idea that whatever weird happens, it's dumb aliens that don't know what they're doing. Um, I think you'll see that you can reject this theory um, after you see what I'm going to present today, uh, the idea that um, intelligence, if it's ET coming across the galaxies and time and space, that they would be dumb and maybe make mistakes. I think that's fairly unlikely. Um, I think it's basically something else, which I will point out. This is what motivated this lecture. This is a um, two pieces um, from Brazil that Gary Nolan showed, and the significance of this was they're apparently from the same crash. Uh, one has the isotopes all messed up and the other one is completely normal. And when I saw that, I just simply said, wow, that's pure theory of wow. Why would these, why would the intelligence, which is what I call it, the intelligence, why would the intelligence do this? Now we have all sorts of ideas. Well, they've got problems in the propulsion, they were mixing it and it, it just happened to, for some reason, they're mixing this, this stuff. Uh, to me, this is um, theory of wow because the theory of wow is basically to get you to stop and wonder what the hell is going on. The theory of wow is based um, on an idea I had a number of years ago and it basically looks at a lot of the um, ideas behind the UFO phenomena that what I would conclude, and this is just my theory, is that the intelligence, whatever it's doing, is basically um, just trying to get our attention. And it does a bunch of weird things. And when you look at all the different paranormal phenomena associated with UFOs and UFOs and all this kind of stuff, uh, you basically start to wonder uh, whether this is just them trying to get our attention. Uh, UFO sightings is a prime example. When I saw my UFO in 1975, uh, the first night I was floored by what I saw. The second night, the thing came flying right at me and then made a left-hand turn and flew off into the north. And years later, I started to wonder 
why did it come at me and then make a left-hand turn and go into the north? Why didn't it just go from the west into the north? Why would it make this turn? And it was like it wanted me to see it. It was pretty evident. The second day that I had the UFO sighting, I remember saying to myself, what's it doing? It's not doing anything. It's just, it's like there. And so when I have people who have UFO sightings, usually I'll stop them and say, so what was it doing? And the usual answer is it wasn't doing anything. It was just there. And then I'll say, do you think it wanted you to see it? I'm not sure, but yeah, people think, yeah, I think it saw that I, that I was watching it. And that's the whole thing. UFO sightings. Why do UFOs have lights on them? We don't have lights on our planes. Why do they have lights? They have lights so you can see them. It's signaling. It's basically trying to get your attention. It's the theory of wow. You go, wow, I saw this UFO. And it has to be bizarre. It has to be strange. That's part of the theory of wow. That unless it's strange, you are not going to remember. It is not going to stick to you when it's really weird or trickster phenomena, whatever you want to call it, when it's really weird, you can't get it out of your mind. That's why they make it really weird. Uh, ground traces. Uh, there's not been ground traces for decades, but this was big when I started in the 1970s was this idea of ground traces. The thing would land and it would burn out crops and it would leave pod, mar pod marks and people would go and measure the pod marks and how heavy it was and all this kind of stuff. And then they stopped doing it. So why did they stop doing it? Then they went to uh, crop circles, which only started in 1982. The crop circles started. And what is this all about? Nobody could ever figure it out, which is basically the bottom line to all UFO phenomena that you really can't figure it out. It always remains a mystery that it's just this weird thing. Why is it landing? Why is it making these marks? Why does it leave crop circles? Everybody will see a crop circle and say, I don't know if it was aliens or who it was, but it was really weird. Whoever, whoever did that, that was worth the price of admission, no matter if it was a hoaxer or whoever, that was amazing stuff. Cattle mutilations is maybe the biggest theory of wild thing. I always say, why do the intelligence, if the intelligence is behind the cattle mutilation, and the intelligence would not be necessarily UFOs, it would be all the paranormal phenomena, which I'll get into in, in, a, in a while. If there's a, a phenomena that's doing cattle mutilations, the big question is, why does it, does, does, why does it do this bizarre mutilation thing? And why does it take every last drop of blood out of the cow? And why is there not a drop of blood around the cow? And the answer is because if there was blood around the cow and if there was blood in the cow and if it wasn't weirdly mutilated, you wouldn't pay attention. That's why they take every last drop of blood out of the cow because everybody's going to go, how did they do that? What, what the heck is going on? And that's the thing. They get you to go, wow. And everybody runs out there with a camera. Everybody talks about it. And that's what they want. They want it to stick. They want it to be bizarre and, and weird. And that's the message, this indirect message. They're trying to get our attention. It may be nothing more than them trying to get our attention to, to put across a message, which I think I'll, I'll explain what I think the message may be. If you take a look at the Tic Tac case, Tic Tac case is prime theory of wow. Why does the Tic Tac drop from 80,000 feet down to sea level in seven eighths of a second? There is no reason whatsoever. You can use the dumb alien theory while they lost power or whatever, but that's moving faster than the drop rate. It's coming down at an incredible rate. They're basically showing off. It's 
it's to get everybody to go, wow, the same as when they make the bubbles in the water. I always make the joke that they told Zogar because they knew the F-18s were coming to go make bubbles under the water. Go make these big giant bubbles and the F-18 flies over and says, wow, there's bubbles in the water. What's going on? And it's theory of wow. It's getting your attention. So everybody's talking about the Tic Tac. Everybody's talking about this drop from 80,000 feet down to sea level. When I had my first sighting, sighting the only reason I went out there was because this thing was being seen in a town called Carmen, Manitoba. And I wanted to go and see what everybody was looking at. I had no interest in UFOs or extraterrestrials. I'd never thought about it. I just wanted to see because it was a big story. And the reason it was such a big story was that after a couple of months, a local TV crew from CKY TV managed to catch this thing on the ground. And as the guy was filming, he had never shot a camera before in his life. He knew they had almost got it on camera the night before. And he knew he had to get something on camera because they were on a volunteer crew. They, they, they wouldn't even be funded by their tv station they didn't want any more to do with this he said the next time this thing glows up i'm sitting on the ground i'm going to shoot as he shoots the thing jumps from ground level to what was estimated at five thousand feet in one eighth of one eighth of a second in in three frames of of film one eighth of a second to jump five thousand feet now why did it do that that's theory of wow it doesn't really have to do that it does that because it's going to capture your attention and someone like me is immediately going to go running out there to see what's going on because this film became a very viral story in the city where I lived. Here's basically what it is. It's this, this idea that, you know, the, the cat is waking you up and it says, wake up, wake up. And it's trying to get your attention. And the idea is we are sleeping and it's trying to wake us up. Um, this is uh, an example of how this works. Uh, we believe that we're awake and that um, we have uh, dream states and that this is the real world. And um, my sighting started in 1975. But in 1975 as well, like Gary Nolan, who had this, this ET metal thing that they're analyzing, also at Stanford University in 1975, uh, Stephen LaBerge starts the uh, Dream Lab. He's doing lucid dream research at Stanford University, and they learn a technique where they can actually get people who can become lucid in their dreams to go into the, the dream state and signal back. They're all wired up onto EEGs, and they can signal back and say that they're in the dream, and they would do experiments. Now, basically, what uh, LaBerge was saying is this whole concept that you think that you're awake. So he says, pause now to ask yourself the following question. Am I dreaming or awake right now? Be serious. Really try to answer the question to the best of your ability and be ready to justify your answer. And this is the whole thing. We believe that we're awake, but in the people that they did in the dream lab, these people would be learn how to wake up in the dream and they would... Um, actually run experiments and what the people would all say is that that world is more lucid it's more uh the colors are brighter everything is is the more real than the real world and they'd say they're in the real world in the lucid dream state and we are in the dream lucid dreams report this near-death experience people will report the same thing I was in the real world. That is the real world. We are living in a dream. Psychedelic people will tell you the same thing. So this is basically what I think the, the phenomena, the intelligence is trying to do is trying to wake us up to the fact, wake up. The world is not what you think it is. 
I've even looked just today, I went to look, has anybody else looked at this theory of wow? And apparently there is some research that has been on, done on this, not the paranormal aspect, but in terms of um, uh, people, um, impressions on people and how things stick in their mind. And what they talk about is this excitement, personal relevance, uh, uh, fitness for use, overwhelming experience, inspiration, and rewarding interaction. So there's actually some research has actually been done on this, this idea of um, the effect that, that a wowing experience has on us. My first experience on this, this whole idea came in 2012 at Laughlin, Nevada, watching a lecture from Colin Anders, which I won't get into. And it comes down to this whole idea that consciousness is primary. And this was sort of like, this is the answer in 1975, the second night that I had the UFO setting. All I was interested in is what is going on here? This thing doesn't seem to be doing anything. What's really going on? I don't know, but somebody's got to know what the heck's going on here. Some, something, something really strange is happening. It was like my, uh, my world was suddenly in a place where I suddenly realized I may be dreaming because there's something beyond what I thought was possible. If uh, the world was as people described it to me, I wouldn't be seeing what I saw. So it was this idea. And the answer that came to me in 2000, I had this download experience, February 26, 2012, uh, watching Colin Andrews lecture, which basically said the answer is consciousness. You want to know what that was all about? It's consciousness. Here's the bottom line. Max Planck, the father, uh, godfather, the father of quantum physics said, as a man who has devoted his whole life to the most clear headed science, to the study of matter, I can tell you as a result of my research about the atoms, this much, there is no matter as such. All matter originates and exists only by virtue of a force which brings the particles of an atom to vibration and holds this mine, most minute solar system of the atom together. We must assume behind this force the existence of a conscious and intelligent mind. This mind is the matrix of all matter. And when we start to realize that there may not be a physical world, or as John Wheeler said, there is no out there, out there, then everything starts to fall apart. And that's the message we get. The world is not what you think it is. All these weird things, these anomalies would not be happening if the world was the way you described. It is not the way you think it is. That's the idea of the anomaly, that when you study the anomaly, you realize there's something beyond the physical world, and we're being messaged, we're being told, whether it's your higher self, whether it's aliens, whoever it is, if it's multiple life, then you plan this for yourself to put this in there to wake yourself up, but this is an awakening. Uh, I had my download experience, and I um, uh, started to lecture on this. And Ray Hernandez, the, who started the Free Foundation with uh, Edgar Mitchell and a bunch of other people, um, had his own contact experience. And his world was shattered. And he realized that he could actually make contact with this thing, that he had actually brought this object, the size of Wembley Stadium, over the next door neighbor's house in. He wanted to know. So he looked up consciousness and UFOs. My name popped up. 
I gave a lecture in Florida where he attended and we talked about consciousness and what was going on. A couple of days later, he had this famous contact modality experience where he's pulled out of his car into an out-of-body state and he's shown a wheel and they're showing ghosts and spirits, UFO contact, shamanic journeys, OBEs, mystical meditation, channeling, remote viewing, near-death experiences. And they're saying, you've got to quit parsing it. It's all the same thing. It's all consciousness. And these are all the paranormal phenomena that we have. And basically, uh, people have the different contact modalities. And the more we talk about these different modalities, the more we realize it's this consciousness thing behind the physical world. And these messages are coming through and these stories are coming through and these bizarre uh, uh, events are coming through, these moments of wow that make us stop and think and say, something's going on, something is unusual. I wrote a book called Contact Modalities, and basically we looked at 70 plus contact modalities. And basically that's what we came to was that everybody can access these fields, that there's a field outside the uh, human brain. Uh, and by shutting down the left rational analytical ego, by quieting that side of the brain, uh, if you can quiet the mind, as the remote viewers say, say, and you can be completely clear, you can pick up on the signal. As long as we have the left brain talking away and the, the noise, uh, we miss the signal. But the signal is there for everybody to hear. Again, we have this idea that it's the, the dumb alien thing, where we have this idea that the, these dumb aliens are here and they're doing all sorts of, of, of stupid things. And I think the more you look at it, the more you're going to realize it's these, uh, they have maybe done this on a thousand different planets before, whatever this intelligence is, it knows exactly what it's doing. And we are part of a game that is being played. And uh, nobody's stupid in this whole thing. Uh, we, we get the idea that uh, we have uh, UFO crafts that have come across uh the time and space of the universe and have dodged universes and galaxies and black holes and have made it here and then here we get about seven ufos over a field in uh, eastern canada and that this all happened by accident that these these dumb aliens are lost and they're they're here and uh people say well no they're here to mutilate the cattle well mutilated cattle didn't happen in that part of canada it only happened mostly in the uh, mid uh, and Western United States on the east, the east side of the Rocky Mountains. So uh, we have this kind of stuff and we sort of interpret that this is just random, that these aliens are, are here and they're lost and they're, they're trying to explore and they're trying to figure out what's going on. And we don't realize that this may have actually been set up for the camera, that they, they posed for this thing and they wanted this. This was a, a reporter from a newspaper who captured this and it was in the Stanton Friedman files. That's where we found it. Again, they come through all the, the, the uh, time and space and, and uh, avoiding you know, um, fields of, of debris and stars and planets and whatever, and they make it all here. And then we suddenly get uh, these crazy situations where you get a real theory of wow thing where it makes no sense whatsoever. So you have 1897, you have an Aurora, Texas, you have a UFO comes, and they've come all the way across time and space, avoided all this sort of stuff, and they're flying at eight miles an hour, and they run into a windmill and crash. 
Now, does that really make sense? Eight miles an hour and they crash into a windmill. They came all, all the way here. And it's the old thing. It's like these dumb aliens and they, they just sort of run into this thing. And we assume that this was an accident. If you take a look at um, some of the material that's been put out, Bob Bigelow talked about the fact that he believed that the crashes were being seeded. He said this in one interview, he believed they were being seeded. Um, Tyler D apparently has said that they call this place in New, New, New Mexico, I'll show you some of the material from there later, called it the gifting field, as if they uh, this stuff is being dropped, that there, there's no dumb aliens doing anything, that this may all be staged, that this is all, all planned. And it's the same thing as to create this anomaly to get us to wonder what the heck's going on here. And uh, the, the last person that talked about this, I even talked to Jacques Vallée about this, about this doesn't make any sense, Jacques, that you come across the galaxy and then suddenly everybody starts crashing and little pieces are falling off the flying saucers and stuff like this. This doesn't make any sense. This looks like they're, they're gifting. And that's when Jacques Vallée said, well, I think I'm the one that came up with that idea of the gifting, that this is maybe not as random as people think it is, especially when you've got a craft that's moving at eight miles an hour and it, cra it crashes by hitting a windmill. Uh, the Trinity is another one. I mean, you come across uh, all this, the galaxies and, and time and space, and then you're, you're flying along and you run into a communication tower in 1945. I mean, was that an accidental thing or was that actually intended? It happened a couple of miles from the Trinity site, and you have all these significance that there seems to be a message behind what's going on here. And you start to wonder, is this random or is this a wow event? Roswell's another one. We have we have the dumb alien thing. We believe that, you know, the aliens, they made it all the way across the galaxy and then they get hit by lightning and crash. Or the other most more even more bizarre one was two of them are flying around and run into each other. And, and this is uh, you start looking at this stuff and you start thinking like this is this is not very uh, smart thinking. It makes more sense that this may have been intentional. Here's the, the old idea. It's like, you know, these dumb aliens and they're, they're crashing and they're crashing all over the place. And we go about this. The other bizarre thing that I've always pointed out with, with crashes, and this is from the Stanton Friedman files. This is a guy who sent them. I don't think this was ever analyzed. They have this under lock and key. I told him to put it under lock and key. This is a piece that he claimed was from the Roswell crash. Somebody had sent to him. I'm not sure whether they were analyzed, but he was saying, here's the piece. And when you see all these pieces, for example, the Gary Nolan pieces you see at the very beginning, what you see is they're in little tiny fragments. So here you have the, if you've heard the, the Roswell story that you had this material was so strong that you could take a sledgehammer and smash with a sledgehammer and you couldn't dent it. But if it, if it hits a, uh, uh, a windmill at eight miles an hour, it's gonna crash into, it's gonna break into little tiny pieces like this. That does not make any sense that it would break into these little tiny pieces, like dropping a wine glass off the fifth floor of a balcony. Uh, there's something else going on here that you have all these little pieces that suddenly appear from um, something that uh, is so advanced and should uh, actually break into bigger pieces. So this is the small little pieces. This is from the Ubatuba. Uh, sighting, and I think we have, um, oh no, here's the, um, this is the, um, from uh, the 1950s, this was uh, the Ubatuba thing where we have all these, these crashes, and the other one we have is, most people don't realize the very first sighting was not so much Kenneth Arnold's sighting, it was three days before Kenneth Arnold, 
And that was the Maury Island sighting, which again is this idea that the uh, the UFO is pretending it's like it's it's like a bird with a broken wing, where the bird wants to get you away from the nest, where it wants to get your attention, and it pretends it's it's injured, and so you have this injured UFO, and it's flopping around, and there's six of them, and then the one is flopping around, and it comes in close to the boat and starts inundating them with pieces of metal that are falling down, and the dog actually gets killed. One guy gets hit in the arm. Part of the the ship is injured, and all this material is raining down and so it's either this is intended that they wanted this big thing to stage the beginning of the ufo flap in 1947 with this bizarre thing at maury island or you think it's dumb aliens who can't fly fly their craft that, that suddenly um come into our airspace and suddenly have trouble here's the 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 bob white piece this is uh there's a lot of this material people i don't think people realize how much this material Bob White tells the same sort of story where he runs into this thing. He's going across to make a trip to California. I think he's on the um, the border of Colorado and Utah. He sees this UFO. He flashes high beams at it. This UFO moves and shoots this piece of metal out. And the metal is always going to be weird metal. So it's not just ordinary metal that that comes. It'll always have some bizarre characteristic to it that makes you go, wow, well, how did they do this? This one here rings like a bell. It was analyzed at about 13 or 14 different labs, uh, toured the country, uh, very, very bizarre piece of metal and uh, definitely is, is um, very strange. This is the piece that, that um, Desta and I um, uh, found at the University of Arizona in Tucson. This is a piece from 1939. Again, and like every other piece of metal, it's completely different than every other piece of metal. You never get two from two different crashes that are the same metal, and it always has a bizarre characteristic to it. This one was 1939, came flying out of the sky. It was like a spike, and the spike actually embedded itself into the to the um, the garden. Uh, it was red hot. The farmer had to wait for this thing to cool down before he could um, um, pull it pull it out of the ground. Uh, he pulls it out of the ground, and it's 99% pure nickel with a copper core. It has a, a central copper core to this thing. It was actually taken to NASA and um, and analyzed in 1967. It's in the uh, McDonald files, and um, it's a very bizarre piece of metal. All they could determine was uh, nothing coming out of the sky at that time uh, would have had those kind of metal characteristics, that kind of purity. Again, a theory of wow event. Very, very bizarre. So you've seen this material is all over the place. It's come in. And it's just um, to create an anomaly, I believe, to get people to think. Hunt for the Skinwalker uh, is, uh, I'm about to do a book. It's in editing now. Desta Barnaby is editing the book. And it's on Aports. Aports is a big part of this thing. It's uh, a lot of the metal, I believe, is like a port material. It's being dropped the same as Aports are being dropped. And uh, ports and manifestations are things that move around the, the house, move from one place to another, or stuff falls out of the ceiling into the, into the middle of the floor. And if you look at the uh, Skinwalker story, 
I think in the book, we list 20 different reports where you have situations where the woman comes in with the groceries, uh, puts the groceries uh, away, all the bags are on the counter, she goes in the next room, comes back in and all the groceries are back in the bag. It's those kind of weird uh, wow events. And there was about 20 of them at Skinwalker Ranch, stuff appearing, disappearing. And of course, the biggest one that they had was the one that DIA went there to investigate. And that was how do you take four bulls and comatose the bulls and then stick them inside a locked trailer without opening the door and put them in there like sardines. That's the kind of stuff that they wanted to see the technological implications, whether they could reproduce this, whether they could use this for uh, offense or defensive purposes. And um, so a lot of this theory of wow stuff is going to fall into this category. There are anomalies that are being used by the phenomena to um, wow us, uh, but they have principles that they operate on. Um, here, here's the uh, this famous slide nine that was the DIA had that they used to brief the Senate. Uh, penetration of solid surfaces. That's this whole idea about how do you put metal through uh, bulls into uh, the trailer, anomalies in time-space construct. Uh, so you have these, these kind of things, and that's what they were, I believe, looking mostly at at Skinwalker Ranch. It wasn't much, so much the UFO thing. Uh, it was uh, this bizarre paranormal uh, wow events of uh, ports and manifestations and these kind of things. Um, now, if you take a look at researchers, we get the same sort of thing where you start to see this, these events, that events that happen to UFO researchers are also wow events, that there's maybe not as much random going on there as we think there is. The prime example of this would be uh, Bud Hopkins, who has a um, sighting. People don't realize that he actually uh, was, when the War of the Worlds when it was being played, he was in New Jersey where this thing was supposed to be staged and he was looking out the window and his father and the neighbor had come in with the guns and wanted to go onto the hill and they were going to take on the aliens. And it was real time for Bud Hopkins. He was looking out the window, looking for the aliens to come. He was there when this happened. Now, is that chance? Now, the next thing that happens to him is in the 1960s, he has a daylight sighting. This is his, his version of it. I had a daylight UFO sighting on Cape Cod. It lasted about three minutes. The object seemed to be able to hover. Then it zoomed at great speed straight away into the wind. It, uh, we had thought perhaps it was some kind of weather balloon or something, but clearly it wasn't. And when you see something like that, and the three of us saw it jumping, jumping out of the car, finally uh, watching it disappear, you realize there's some factor in the world that you had previously been unaware of, exactly the same thing I had there's some anomaly something in your world is not fitting and it could be an extremely important factor so that's the whole thing he saw it and the question is what was the ufo doing it wasn't doing anything it was just sitting there letting bud look at it and then taking off at an incredible rate why would you need to take off like a lightning bolt going the opposite way, which a lot of people describe, why would you have to leave in such a bizarre manner? Because they want you to go, wow, nothing can move away that fast. It's the banana. And then when you take a look at that, so they've got Bud Hopkins' attention, and then they capture him in 1975, the same year that I started, they um, um, do um, the next thing to him. And that is, 
he is buying wine and, and liquor from the corner uh, store. And the guy who owns it is this guy here. And he tells Bud a story. He said, I'm driving home um, and I'm driving down. And suddenly this UFO comes uh, up and it is flying along the same, same as with me, almost like in Close Encounters of the Third Kind, where the object is following the car. And then it goes up and goes over top of the car. And it goes into this field. And it goes into the field outside of this apartment complex here and bizarre as it seems the name of the apartment complex was the stonehenge so this guy saw this thing and he was driving very very slowly and he was watching and what happens the ufo lands and nine to eleven little aliens that looked like uh, little children with snowsuits on come down a, a sort of a ladder type of affair from the ufo almost like firefighters going to a fire at a very rapid rate they've all got bags and they've got these spoon shovels and they're digging holes in the ground they quickly dig these holes and they they, they zip back into the ufo go back in and the thing takes off this guy is totally petrified he goes back and he actually finds 15 holes in the ground dug so the question is, why would aliens need to come and dig holes in the ground and gather dirt? Why would you need, not need one bag of dirt? You need 15 bags of dirt. It was classic theory of wow. And what happens is Bud goes there and Bud hears this story and has had his own UFO experience. So he goes to investigate this and talks to the guard at the, the security guard at that, that complex, the apartment complex. And that guy said, yes, I saw an object in the field and as the thing took off, the window cracked. So again, you get this weird theory of wow, as if something hit the window and the, the window cracked. And Bud goes there into the field and investigates. And sure enough, here's 15 places where the guy who was keeping the field had filled in these 15 holes. And when Bud saw that, he was hooked. That's how they got him down the rabbit hole. And that's how it works. It gets you to the point where you realize the world is not the way you think it is and you get caught and you get dragged into the thing. And if it wasn't weird, if none of the things fit, you wouldn't realize it. They're doing these weird things and they're giving you a message. Uh, here's one of the biggest ones. Bud Hopkins actually brought this up and David Jacobs has brought this up about the dumb aliens. They can't even put people back in the right cars. And they have this whole idea that a lot of people will actually come back from an experience and their, their t-shirt is inside out and backwards. So I have a friend whose name is Jim. And I asked Jim, I said, Jim, did they ever do that to you? He said, yeah, they did it twice. You want a photograph? And he sends me the photograph of when it happened to him. The shirt was inside out and backwards, T-shirt. And basically, the other thing they did is they spilled this stuff all over it. And it actually was sent to Kathy Martin. And they were doing this investigation. And this big theory of wild thing was going on. Like, what happened? What's this stuff on the shirt? And it was basically telling him, yes, something happened last night. And he spent the rest of his life uh, trying to figure this whole thing out as to what's going on. What was this stuff on the shirt? Why did it turn inside out? And he had a number of very bizarre uh, experiences in his bedroom uh, with this phenomenon. Um, I, I mentioned some of this before, the tic-tac dropping. Uh, why would uh, orbs, you, you hear a lot of these stories where uh, a UFO flies along and three objects come out of it and make a triangle. So why would they do that? Why? I mean, is this a pre-abduction maneuver where they make a triangle in the sky before they go and grab somebody? Uh, this is all classic theory of wow. Now back to this, uh, what, what motivated this whole thing 
was this whole idea that um, this is the Ubatuba event, uh, these pieces, 1957. Uh, one has uh, straight uh, isotopes, normal isotopes of magnesium, and the other one has these uh, bizarre ratios, and it's both in the same sample. So the question is, why would you have this uh, bizarre uh, difference in the same sample? They use the secondary ion mass spectrometer, and um, it had perfectly correct isotope ratios for what you would expect for magnesium found anywhere on earth. Meanwhile, the other one was just way off, like 30% off the ratios. And the, so we have this, we had come up with all these ideas about crazy, you know, dumb aliens and they, you know, they mixed it and they didn't really mix it right. Or there's a problem and whatever. And that's why they crashed or all these different things. And it may just simply be that they want you to go, wow. And of course, now these things are locked up into safes and people are, you know, spending big time money to try to analyze it. And they've got everybody's attention. Here's the actual story. Uh, that was given with the pieces that first came in 1957. I was fishing together with various friends at a place close to the town of Ubatuba, Sao Paulo. When I sighted a flying disc, it approached the beach at an unbelievable speed and an accident that is a crash into the sea seemed imminent. At the last moment, however, when it seemed it was almost striking the water, it made a sharp turn upward and climbed rapidly at a fantastic impulse. Astonished, we watched the spectacle with our own eyes. And when we saw the disc explode in flames with no sound, it disintegrated into thousands of fiery fragments, which fell sparkling with magnificent brightness. They looked like fireworks despite the time of the accident at noon, at the midday, most of the fragments almost all fell into the sea, but a number of small pieces fell close to the beach, and we picked up a large amount of this material, which was as light as paper. I'm enclosing a sample of it. Now, that is like almost out of a movie. That's like get, talk about getting people's attention. And so I've, I've talked to, and uh, both Jacques and I talked to Hal about this. And I think they realize this, there's some significance to what this is about. They've both picked up on this. So let me go through these, these, these two men and what they've done. And basically, basically it's this wake up call. It's like, wake up, wake up, um, that uh, they're, they're using these people. Now, we, we, um, Hal put off when I talked to him about it, I sent him a letter and said, I mean, this has to be like a port material because he had the experience. Edgar Mitchell writes this. This is from the uh, Uri Geller when he was at SRI in the early 1970s. And they broke off with Uri Geller because the idea was that he had connections to Mossad and they had the CIA wouldn't have anything to do with this. So, but when Geller was being investigated, this is what Edgar Mitchell says. We were finishing lunch in the cafeteria at SRI and Geller was eating a dish of ice cream. He, he bit down on something in the ice cream and it cut his mouth. So he was swearing at it. I fished it out of the ice cream, scraped it off and washed it and was surprised to see what it was. And basically it was a pin that, that Edgar Mitchell had lost in Houston two years before. And this was the pin and it was in Yuri Geller's ice cream. So they would think, well, maybe Yuri stuck it in the ice cream. But then about 30 minutes later, when we'd gone back to the lab, the class part of the pin fell on the floor behind Hal Putoff. And about 30 minutes after that, we were standing in the laboratory. This other tie pin showed up 
that I had lost in Houston at the same time as the other one. So Yuri's in the other room. So they're in the room and this back half of the pin drops in behind them. Now, this is the same thing as a UFO coming flying by and suddenly it blows up and comes down and lands at your feet. This is the same thing. It's called manifestation, like stuff coming or being apported, moved from one place to another. And um, this is um, something that I'm writing a book on. There's an awful lot of this material around. And uh, so Hal Putoff would be aware of the fact that material um, uh, would appear like this and it would have a message. There's a, there's a message they're trying to get across to you, the idea, the world, if you can be in a room and a pin uh, uh, is found in ice cream and then the, the second half of the pin is drops in behind you when you're in a sealed room a couple of minutes later, you realize the world is not as material and as random as you might think it is. Something weird is going on. And when you look at the anomaly, that's when you make the discovery. In fact, uh, Gary Nolan said that was the important thing. I, I write about the 95%, but I'm most interested in the 5% anomalies because that's where the inventions will come from. It's the weird things that you can't explain that will lead you to inventions. And that's the theory of wow, the anomalies. Uh, um, Jacques Vallée also had this. I mean, he um, did a, a paper this a number of years ago where he starts gathering all these alleged ejected material. Now, I would say it's not just ejected material. There's all sorts of material that is appearing um, in different uh, ways through reports and stuff like that. And it's all basically the same thing, but at least he got the idea to put all this material together and to try to see a pattern. And there is a pattern when you start looking at it, that this stuff is happening all over the place. Here's an example that I will give you that uh, Jacques, this is from a 1978 interview that Jacques Vallée did. Um, and he said, let me give you an example of what I mean. Recently, Paul investigated a case in Northern California in which two older persons saw a UFO take off. Afterward, they saw a sort of ring on the ground. This is like the ground traces that don't happen anymore. So this happened all, all time in the 1970s. It leaves this ring on the ground. Within the ring, they found some molten metal and a pile of sand. So here you have, again, the molten metal. And you either believe it's dumb aliens who, you know, uh, something went wrong with the craft and they had to eject this metal or whatever, or they're leaving it for a reason. And why are they leaving the metal? And more accurately, why are they leaving the pile of sand? Now, this happens, as I say, all over the place. This is the Falcon Lake sighting, uh, which was May 25th, 1967, which actually was the same day that an M a MiG-25 flew over the Damona uh, nuclear plant in uh, Israel just before the Six-Day War. And the Six-Day War was about nuclear weapons. And the MiG-25 flew over there because the, the invasion by the Egyptians was a uh, cover for the Russians who were going to come in and take out the Demona plant, which was putting its first two nuclear weapons together, it was assembling the weapons at that point. The same day that happened, this sighting happens in, in Falcon Lake. This is one of the more, probably the most famous sighting in Canada. This is a case where the guy is burned. You, here's the area where uh, this thing was sitting on the ground. He touched it when it was powered up and he was injured by this whole thing. And what people may not realize is that um, the the place where it was the year after they did a major investigation and they discovered silver and i think it was 93 percent pure silver but it had bizarre characteristics to this silver so at this landing site there was also silver 
This is not an unusual thing. And the thing is, what is that? It's the whole idea of creating another mystery, another theory of wow, another uh, thing that gets people's attention and gets people to realize this is not normal. There's something going on and you're to figure out uh, the fact that you may be dreaming, there may be more going on in the world than what you think it is. You really don't have it figured out. Um, now, here's the second part of Jacques Vallée's um, uh, talk about this landing trace, which is pretty significant. I'll explain why. Obviously, there is physical evidence, two tangible things, the molten metal, which turns out to be brass, and the sand. I took some of the latter, the sand, so he takes the sand, here we go. I took some of the sand to a geologist friend who knows about sand. And he said it was highly unusual, surprise, surprise, because it did not contain quartz and it was not stream sand or beach sand or residue from mining or anything else. It seemed to be artificial sand created from grinding stones together of different origin. Well, to a physicist, that may not mean too much. It's an indication that something turns out to be absurd. And that's the whole point. It's a wow. It has to be absurd. Otherwise, you're not going to pay any attention. It's this bizarre, not just sand, but really weird sand that they leave. Now, here's how it ties in. This is a case from Tucson, Arizona. There's a woman by the name of Paula, who I was doing a, a, a lecture on a ports in Tucson, Arizona. I was contacted by a researcher who started to show me these photographs. Paula walks into her bathroom. She's an experiencer. She's had a lot of bizarre things happening, a lot of wow stuff happening, poltergeist type stuff happening. And she walks into the middle of the bathroom. And here in the middle of the bathroom floor is a pile of dirt in the middle of the bathroom floor. And so she's going like, what is going on? And they actually analyze it. And again, it's very, very bizarre. There's not been a final analysis done on this. She discovered a small disc that looked almost like a candy. But it was sheared, uh, and one part of it has a little semicircular piece that's moved off to one side. So they found all these bizarre things about this sand. And what she discovered later was not only that, she goes to a restaurant. She goes to a restaurant, and the sand appears under the booth where she's sitting in there. And they managed to get a photograph as the person's trying to clean up the sand from the restaurant. So this sand was following around. It's the same thing, bizarre, weird sand that is unexplainable that appears in the, in the crop circle that Jacques Vallée is talking about, and then appears in Tucson in the middle of this woman's bathroom floor. So why would you leave a pile of sand or dirt in the middle of a bathroom floor? They want you to go, wow. They want you to go something weird is going on here and get your attention here's even more bizarre the same woman so you talk about theory of wow why would they do this why would they take her earbud from her, uh, her ipod and string it through the eye of the uh the zipper on her purse this is impossible they're just going watch this try to explain this. This is called theory of wow. It's these very bizarre things that follow this woman around, all these bizarre things that are happening to her that are inexplainable. Third Eye Spy, here uh, shows uh, Lance uh, uh, Mangia, who uh, did, produced it, talks about this uh, photograph that was taken uh, in uh, Fox was going to put in, he put the photograph in, but he didn't put the backstory to this, this thing. Lance told a story about this guy, this guy, this is the Australian um, sighting at the school. 
And um, the, 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 this photograph was taken at the same time. And the other thing that happened was this was um, the same time as, as the Six Day War. It was also the same time as the first hearing and the Appropriations House Committee uh, that Ford initiated happened the same day. That, that, that committee meeting on, on UFOs that, that Ford had initiated. The thing was, this guy takes this photograph of a UFO, and then he's approached by high-level, um, claiming to be high-level Australian officials to try to get the photograph off him and threaten him not to do this photograph. And then he starts having paranormal phenomena happen. And he, and he has the paranormal phenomena. And then in the middle of the night, he has a knock on the front door and there's this little weird looking alien standing there on his front porch. And he's looking at him and he's pointing at him and he's, he's yelling at him in some weird language the guy couldn't understand. And then turns around, walks away and disappears, just vanishes into thin, thin air. And the guy said that he never believed that just taking a photograph would drag him into this weird thing. So the thing is, is this a random event that all these things happen random or has he been drawn into the whole thing? And the photograph is part, it wasn't a random photograph. We sort of assume all this stuff is random and it may all be very much planned that everybody is, is, is in this little uh, game, especially if reincarnation is a fact. You may be in this little cycle that as uh, Sherry Wilde talked about, she wrote a book called The Forgotten Promise that her whole bizarre life that got flipped upside down by her UFO experiences the being said, Sherry, have you forgotten the promise that you made, that you made a promise that you were going to do all this kind of stuff? Uh, again, this is all over the place. This is a book that I've just put out, the Canadian government uh, UFO story, the Wilbur Smith files. This is Wilbur Smith. This was a piece from 1959 in Canada. There was a big giant explosion uh, over the St. Lawrence River, which a lot of people heard. The next morning, they found two huge pieces of metal um, one was 3,000 pounds, one was 2,000 pounds. The 2,000 pound piece was sent for scrap. The Ottawa Flying Saucer Club grabbed this other piece, the 3,000 pound piece. And Wilbur has a bunch of discussion about um, analysis that they tried to do on this piece. Wilbur believed this was an extraterrestrial uh, crash or like, uh, you know, a UFO that had, you know, had uh, broken up and crashed and left this. And now looking back, it may not be as random as, as Wilbur might have thought it was. And uh, Wilbur talks about the analysis they did on this and uh, how hard it was to analyze this stuff and how they would uh, take diamond uh, saws and stuff and, and the teeth would come off them, that this is very, very hard. And he talked about the micrometeorites embedded. So this stuff has been going on for a long time, 1959. This piece is actually still somewhere in Ontario. They moved it into one of the people's front yards and we sort of lost track of it, but um, 1959, it's been going on. This is the 1952 piece that Wilbur talked about that had been brought to his uh, house. Um, and let's see if I can, um, let me just, this is a, the 52 piece. This was a piece that they believed at the time was shot off a, shot off a UFO and Wilbur analyzed this. When I talked to the metallurgist, I talked to him about this and he said that, uh, I said, how much material did you and Wilbur actually analyze? And he said, tons of it was coming all over the place. We may Many times I do remember blue military cars pulling up the house and leaving packages of things for him to uh, do metallurgical analysis on. 
James Smith was a son of Robert Smith. He said there were chunks that unidentified things or did he did he actually use uh, the word flying saucers or uh, yes yeah, on, a, on a couple of instances i remember packages uh, of the size of a loaf of bread coming in the box would contain a chunk of metal that and wilbur told that the air force had shot a chunk off of a flying saucer he'd like, they'd already done some analysis of it uh -huh. i'd like to have him to have a go at it too so now was this the american air force or the canadian air force well i, I don't remember what color the plane it was but it came from the states whether it was delivered to the house by a Canadian uh -huh. oh, yeah so he came from the states yeah that's right yeah yeah ufo hardware was being stored you actually saw some of these you can um, uh, we even get into this, this, um, uh, idea of American cosmic where, um, uh, Dan Pasolka talks about the fact that they, um, um, had gone to the site and she'd been taken to the site, um, by Tyler D this, uh, very famous sort of engineer who's been working on UFOs and, um, that he would start to pray that he realized that there was this sort of, um, it was a sort of a it was not random as, as people think it is he would pray they would build an altar and there was all this uh, metal material that was recovered there here's the piece that i got from the site because it was actually my friend who first took tyler d there and showed him the site so this is a piece that was here i was allowed to cut a piece off of it my friend wanted it back and then he lost his part of the piece and i still somewhere i've got a little fragment of this piece this is the piece that i had never been analyzed but just to show you that this metal is all over the place this is from the gifting field this is what tyler d called it the gifting field and this is the idea that this may not have been random this may have actually been dropped and given to us to uh, give us clues little breadcrumbs to move us along and to get us to realize the world is a little bit a weirder place than what we think it is there are a bunch of stuff that um, we don't understand. We think that we're like uh, the time of Max Planck in 1874, where his, his um, instructor told him, don't go into physics. We've discovered everything. And we're now learning that we probably don't realize very much of anything. And this is a piece from the gifting field. And you'll see the triangle and the circle inside the triangle on this piece of metal. Uh, this is one uh, Chris Bledsoe had, which was um, an orb that was flying over his driveway about 11 feet up and was dripping this metal onto the onto the asphalt and he scraped all this stuff up and it was um, uh, recovered. This is the famous um, honeycomb piece. You may have heard about this honeycomb piece. There's a lot of this metal around all over the place. Um, here's my friend uh, Steve Mira, who's done a lot of work on this important material, this whole idea that this is not just recovered metal, this is all sorts of weird stuff. And um, he had a piece, now to show you how this stuff is weird, um, he did some, some work on um, metal pieces and, and a ports on cups. I thought I had a slide, but I guess I don't have the slide, where you can actually see the change in structure of the cup, that a cup had been apported from one part of the room to the other part of the room. So they would take a cup in the same set of cups and they would analyze the cup before it was, uh, the, the one that was not apported and the one that was apported and there was actual structural changes inside, almost the same as the, the UFO thing. And that doesn't mean that there's gonna be propulsion developed out of this cup. It just means that they're doing these weird things where they're changing the structure of the cup after they move it. Not so much because it changes the structure, but they want you to analyze it eventually and figure out this is really weird 
and drag you down the rabbit hole. So he had an experience where he had a coin. He said, we've, we have a lot of his experiences, airport experiences. The one he had, he found a quarter, an American quarter. So he's in Great Britain and this American quarter was in the middle of the floor in, in a doorway on a carpet where you couldn't miss it. So you're walking down and this quarter is there. I think he said it was a very rare American quarter found in Great Britain and he sold out, I think for $150. So he has that and then you have the opposite. So if you're gonna drop a coin in Great Britain, you're not gonna drop a, a, a British coin, you're gonna drop an American coin because it's weird. They want you to realize like, how did this coin get across the sea and onto the carpet of my living room? Here's the Navajo Rangers. They're very much into a ports. They talked about the one weekend. They had 64 coins appear in this one investigation they did inside a building. And they're doing paranormal investigations, say ghost type stuff or uh, paranormal events happening inside a building. It's not so much UFO stuff, but they do do UFO stuff. And they talked about the fact that they also ran into this. And here's their story. Uh, I think it's, um, yeah, this is um, uh, Colonel Halt. So we were down in Phoenix. This is the, the Navajo Rangers. We were down in Phoenix. Colonel Halt was just done speaking. And he was talking about Rendlesham Forest. Everybody had cleared out of the auditorium. There were two people standing talking between a row of chairs. Something hit him in the leg. And then he reached down and he sees two coins. So he picks them up and stuffs them in his pocket. The next morning they were yelling, hey, where are the Navajo Rangers? Get them over here quick. And they're all freaked out. Uh, there are one pound coins that hit him in the boot. So he had these things fall out of the ceiling and hit the floor and hit him in the boot. And they're uh, British coins in the United States. Uh, metal material, if you look at the free survey um, uh, of 3,000 or 4,000 experiences, whatever you uh, want to use for their final figure, uh, material objects mysteriously appear. 25% of all the people that, that uh, answer that question in the survey, material objects fallen or suddenly moved around, 64%. So you can see this paranormal wow thing is very common, um, and it's to basically get us to pay attention to the fact the world is not what we think it is. Here's this um, material that this um, scanning electron microscope, that thing that was done by uh, Steve Mira. He's done lectures on this where he talks about this uh, difference in the, the structure. And he says, when an object is apported, it changes 15 degrees in temperature. When it's apported, there's all these weird things that happen with this stuff. And um, if we look at the anomaly, we will eventually figure out that we may be in a dream. And if we wake up as we do in the lucid dream, then you can start to move around. Once you realize you're in the dream, this is the power of the lucid dream state that Stephen LaBerge had, that once you realize you're, you're um, awake in a dream, that you're dreaming and you're now awake, you become lucid, you understand what's going on and you can ask almost like the, the uh, remote viewing, you can ask any question you want and you will get an answer. It's a very, very powerful state that takes a lot of practice to get into. But the first thing you have to do is you have to uh, gather up the, the uh, what I call in the title, the dream science. So the way it works in lucid dreaming is the first thing you have to do in order to become lucid in a dream is you've got to look for the dream signs. What you do is what Jacques Vallée does. You take all the metal and you gather it all together and you put it into charts 
And in dreams, what you do is you do a dream journal. So you log all your dreams. And what you realize when you see all the dreams is that there's a pattern, that there's something there you didn't realize was going on. And what it is in the lucid dream state is that there's going to be a dream sign. Now, the dream sign is put in by whoever, by the higher intelligence, by your higher self, by whatever. But every dream all these dreams will have dream signs. And it may be, for example, your dead mother keeps appearing in the dreams. And you thought she only appeared one time. But when you start doing the dream, the dream journal, you suddenly realize, oh my God, my mother's in every sixth dream. I, I, I should know this. And the thing is you're dreaming. You don't realize you're dreaming. So you just let it slide by. Once you know what the dream sign is and you say, oh, the next time you're in the dream, you go, you see your mother and you go, oh, I know she's not supposed to be in here. I'm in a dream. The minute you have that, you get the dream sign, you wake up, you realize you're in a dream. That's when you can get this very powerful state. So it's the same thing that's going on. They're giving us these dream signs. They're giving us these weird things. They're telling us, track all this stuff, take a look. This kind of stuff should not be happening in a physical random universe. It's happening because something is going on, but you have to gather the material, get the dream signs, wake up, and then you make the discovery as to how does reality actually work? Thanks for listening.